As dairy farms become bigger and more expensive, foreign and corporate owners are eyeing up slices of New Zealand's productive sector. Opponents fear New Zealand could lose control of the backbone of its export industry. But cashed-up new owners could inject much-needed capital into the industry to fund its expansion. This Radio New Zealand Insight explores the changing landscape of farm ownership. At the start of this century, the average New Zealand dairy farm milked about 240 cows. Twelve years later, it's closer to 400 cows, and the average farm size has jumped by almost 50%. I'm Naomi Mitchell, and in this insight, I look at who's buying New Zealand farmland and what the change in ownership means for the future of New Zealand's productive sector. So on the far side of the road, we've got the original property we bought back in, or parents bought back in 1998. There's uh, 180 hectares over there. Andrew Hogard farms a 300 hectare family block in Kiwatea, 15 minutes drive north of Fielding, and he considers himself to be a traditional New Zealand family dairy farmer. But he admits farm owners these days aren't who they used to be. Certainly, you've seen more and more types of, I guess the generic terms, corporate farms. A, a lot of those are family farms that have actually grown and you've gotten more than um, one farm in, in one family's hands. Certainly locally there's um, two prominent farming families that have purchased a number of farms. There was three, but one of them went belly up in the recession. But you've also gotten outside investors coming in as well, um, people who aren't normally farmers coming in through investment schemes or what you might call equity type arrangements. But then I guess more recently we've seen foreign companies coming in and buying up farms and the Crafer Farms being the main example of buying up groups of farms. I mean, it's the most prominent example, but there's a number of ones that have actually snuck below the radar. I believe there's um, big German interests that have purchased quite a lot of farms in Southland and are looking elsewhere. Lincoln University's Professor of Farm Management and Agribusiness, Keith Woodford, says it's very hard to know exactly how much of New Zealand's farmland is under corporate or foreign ownership because there are no hard statistics available. But he has no doubt corporate ownership is becoming more prevalent as farm prices climb beyond what most individual farmers can afford. A few more years and the average farm will be 500 cows. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any obvious end to that because there are some economies of size which, uh, which exist. And, uh, yeah, if you take a farm, for example, of 500 cows, then uh, that's going to be worth somewhere around 7 to $8 million dollars. And uh, that, of course, isn't, a, isn't your average family farm anymore. Landcorp Farming is New Zealand's largest farmer, with farms spread from Kaitaia to Invercargill. Since the the state-owned enterprise Landcorp has its headquarters in downtown Wellington. Landcorp last year milked 35,000 cows over 52 farms that span 13,000 hectares. Its chief executive, Chris Kelly, thinks the days of 200-cow traditional family farms are numbered and corporates will become more prevalent in the farming scene. The key advantages are economies of scale, 
uh, ability to invest more money in things like training, research and development, uh, and leverage that critical mass by way of uh, cheaper uh, inputs of, of purchases, those sorts of things. And it's definitely an increasing trend. But corporate farming doesn't sit easy with all farmers. Andrew Hogarth says some smaller farmers are becoming increasingly uneasy about the buying power of bigger corporates. Recently there was a, um, a receivership locally of a number of farms and they were all purchased by Landcorp and I got a lot of calls from local farmers who were looking at some of those properties. You know, Maybe one farmer would be looking at one property as their sort of second property. Um, there was a few people that were looking at you buying one of those properties as their first farm. You know, they, they've been working for years, they'd saved up the dollars and they were ready to make the step. But certainly with the big purchasing power of uh, corporate or land corp in this case, they were able to just come in over the top of everyone and um, buy the whole lot up. Um, so that took away the opportunity for families to go onto farms. And he says it's not just farm prices that are climbing because of corporates, but the costs of running a farm for the smaller operators. When you've got the corporate type, where they've got a bit of economy of scale then, they can put pressure on rural suppliers to say, OK, we'll do all our business with you, but we're going to pay you 1% less for this product. Now, to get that custom, the rural supplier may very well do that deal with the aim that they'll push the price up and recoup their money and that'll be off the um, little guys. Landcorp's Chris Kelly admits bigger players may squeeze smaller farmers by getting cheaper prices for farm products, but he says corporate farming comes with its own costs too. Corporate farmers of necessity do need to spend more money on training, on governance, so I have a, we have to pay for a board of directors, uh, and those sorts of things which private farm and, and pay um, standard salaries of employees, whereas private farmers don't have to do that. And I think they have more flexibility and in really hard times they, you know, they don't buy a new tractor, they don't buy a new car and they cut their wages back. So it's, it's, it's a bit of a horses for courses thing. But he doesn't accept corporates are forcing smaller farmers out of the market. That's an area that there's a lot of discussion and scuttlebutt about, but, but not really. And the, the reason I say that is that generally we're only interested in very large farms and there are lots of small farms which come up for sale and neighbours are, are often very well um, able to buy that farm, which is a sort of farm we would not be interested in. So I think we compete in slightly different markets. And once a corporate owner has bought a farm, Chris Kelly says they're often better placed to make investments than their smaller counterparts. One example of that is, is a technology that we're measuring milk as it leaves the cow before it goes into the vat, and that's a, what's called an inline milk meter on every farm. Now, it's a wonderful technology, but the, but the cost of, of the capital cost of, of putting it into the shed is about $160,000. It's then about $4,500 per annum to run that. The benefits are there, but for an individual farmer, it's quite a hurdle to overcome, frankly, whereas it's, it's somewhat easier for corporate farmers. It's milking time at Tudutotara, a corporate-style but family-owned farm between Martin and Hunterville. 
David Marshall was brought up on the property, which over the years has been converted to a dairy farm and now has about 1,400 cows. Mr Marshall says a well-run family enterprise is very hard to beat, but there are lessons to be learned from the corporate farm. The family farms can learn a lot about discipline, focus, accountability. It's very easy in a family farm just to say, oh, that happened and not worry about it. So, yeah, a lot of, a, a lot of the discipline of a corporate farm is good. And people on the farm like getting the feedback and that discipline. So what sort of elements have you taken, for example, and put on this farm? In this farm we have a formal strategy process that the general manager... In this farm here we have a share milking company, as well as a landowner, which in this case is ourselves. Um, this, the, the, the farm manager owns a share of that share milking company. We have an independent board which meets four times a year that allows us to keep discipline, focus and, and are we hitting our goals. In a farm like this, the risks, you know, we need to weigh up risks a lot more and there's a lot of stakeholders involved, the banks, the staff, key contractors. On the corner of Fielding's Manchester Square, there's a two-storey grey office building. It's the home of My Farm, a corporate farmer which manages 47 properties worth, in total, about $500 million. Has 270 investors, most of whom are New Zealanders, but as Director Andrew Waters explains, the makeup of those clients has changed in the firm's 22-year history. Four or five years ago, two-thirds of our investors were probably dairy farmers. Uh, today, it's probably two-thirds are non-dairy farmers. So. Uh, that the, the difference has been made up from um, retired farmers, sheep and beef farmers, people with an association with farming, and city city investors just looking for a solid, low risk asset with a with a reasonable return. Quite a big space you've got here. Yeah, it's good. We've we just relocated back here about probably coming up a year ago. So. And so this is our version of the kitchen table where all the the bills are paid for the farm. Andrew Waters says My Farm aims to give investors a good return, currently about 6 or 7%. For the last three years, the company's raised between 40 and $50 million a year to invest in New Zealand farms, making it one of the country's largest rural asset management companies. But while it follows corporate disciplines, Andrew Waters says its practices are firmly based around a family farming blueprint. We're aiming to be like any good farmer, if, and that's what we're trying to replicate. And to do that, we firstly employ a good young farmer who has the opportunity to, to be a 5 to 25% shareholder in that farm. And so he's, he and she are driving production on the farm, they're looking at af after the farm as its own, and, and again, we aim to leave the farm better than the condition that we found it in. And I guess the only difference for us in being corporate is we've got some investors, uh, some outside investors, so we've got to look after their money, so there's some more checks and balances. And also some of those investors don't know too much about farming. So if we have uh, a six-week dry period like we did in Southland this year, we've got to provide them information, good quality information about what's happening, how we're reacting to it, and if there are any financial consequences. So the big difference is um, around communication and reporting and a little bit more structure and systems 
around decision making and simple things like paying the bills. With annual exports in excess of $12 billion, the dairy industry is by far New Zealand's biggest export earner. Not surprisingly, foreigners are keen to get in on the action, both for the financial gains and to secure food sources to feed their growing populations. There are no figures available to show exactly how much New Zealand farmland is in the hands of corporates or foreigners. Overseas investment office records show consent was given for more than 15,000 hectares of agricultural land to be sold to foreign buyers last year. That's the smallest amount since 2007, and less than a third of what was sold to foreigners in 2001. But the figures don't detail whether the land was prime farmland or less productive properties. The statistics also don't show if the land has since been sold back to New Zealanders or if the foreign buyers were working with New Zealand co-owners. Save the Farms is a lobby group calling for an immediate halt to the sale of farmland to overseas buyers. The group is made up of and funded by individuals from legal and professional backgrounds who oppose all sales of prime land to foreigners. Most recently, a bid by Hong Kong-based dairy group Shanghai Pangjin to buy the 16 Crafer farms. The New Zealand government is awaiting a fresh overseas investment office recommendation on the bid after the High Court ruled the earlier one had to be reconsidered. Save the Farms spokesperson Tony Boucher says more hard facts are needed showing exactly who owns what. What we've got is a government who's saying, well, look, it's less than 2% of the total land of New Zealand. But that's really an irrelevant number because that includes all our national parks, etc. What we need to know is, you know, what is the percentage of our agriculture and horticultural land owned by overseas investors? And I think that is the only way that we are going to keep a tab on it. At the moment, we are being told by our officials and by federated farmers, etc., that we need not be concerned because the incident of foreign ownership is so small. But we don't really know that. And I think the public want to know and they want truthful statistics and not some sort of statistics that just suit the government of the day. Tony Boucher says even if figures about exactly who owns what were readily available, care is needed to ensure foreign owners aren't masking their identity beneath complex corporate structures. He'd like the wholesale process opened up. What we do know here in New Zealand and the concern that's being expressed by Save the Farms and by the public of New Zealand is that a lot of the decision-making of land, it's made by the Overseas Investment Office and it's made behind closed doors. Um, They give us all sorts of excuses as to the reason for that. Uh, Certainly, um, I think the decision-making process has got to come out into the open. We've got to be confident that whatever inquiries the Overseas Investment Office makes as to who is behind these corporate structures that it's a, um, a good uh, and solid investigation so that not only the government but also the people of New Zealand can be satisfied that we know exactly who it is who's investing in our land. It's, our land is absolutely important to us and it's important that we understand the identities of the people behind these corporate structures. Ian Proudfoot heads the Asia-Pacific Agribusiness Division at KPMG and regularly speaks with industry leaders to gauge the state of the sector. He warns New Zealand can't afford to close the door to foreign investment and expertise. If you look back through the history of New Zealand, you know, initially the capital came from Britain and then it came from the United States and it's come from Australia. We've always gone to wherever has got capital to invest with us. Now that capital's in Asia. We need to be prepared to 
respect and value the contribution they can make to our economy. They're going to be our customers in the future. So I, I think it's really important we don't shut the door to foreign investment. I'm concerned about some of the noises that are going around at the moment, the impact that will have on people's perception of investing here. We need to be seen as an open economy that welcomes foreign investment, welcomes foreign in innovation, and actually prepare ourselves to... Um, take the step forward in terms of gaining productivity, but also gaining more than that, gaining important links to markets, gaining new innovation and gaining relationships. All of those will help us um, build the business in the future. Ian Proudfoot says investors from Asia in particular have a lot to offer New Zealand's exporters. They're developing, they want to eat more Western protein, particularly those people that have got more wealth in those societies. So it's, it's, it's a no-brainer that a lot of our product is going to go there. So we need to understand that market much more closely. And at the moment, unfortunately, from an international perspective, we're, we're giving a message out that we don't understand them and we, we're frightened of them. And that's a, that's a really bad message to be sending. To enable parents and babies to share in the benefits of New Zealand's natural, pure and clean environment. As demand for New Zealand's dairy exports grows, infant formula is hot property, particularly among Asian buyers looking for safe sources of nutrition. Landcorp's Chris Kelly says New Zealand should be doing all it can to protect its enviable position as being a safe place for food production. I was in, in China um, earlier this year and a one litre container of UHT milk sourced from New Zealand sells on the shops for 27 RMB. A one litre UHT milk, which in a theory is identical, sourced from China, sells for seven. So that's the sort of price difference that New Zealand can achieve. And, and look, if we can do that uh, and, and better the country's economic performance, I think that's good for New Zealand. Opponents have been particularly vocal about foreign investment in New Zealand farmland in recent years, fearing the productive sector may be lost to offshore buyers or companies ultimately controlled by foreign governments. But Lincoln University's Keith Woodford says foreign investment, especially in the processing side of the dairy sector, will be key to growing the dairy industry, especially if the investors have specific insights about the markets the products are destined for. We've had a good example of that in the last two or three years where Sinlay, the South Island company just south of Christchurch here, they were looking for New Zealand capital to expand and simply couldn't find it. And so they've gone into a partnership with Bright, which is a major Chinese dairy company. Looking at it just from the outside, that seems to me to be a very good arrangement. Something is happening there which couldn't happen if the foreign funds didn't come in. And I like to think that uh, it's a win-win where we're all better off from that uh, foreign investment. Doesn't it mean the profits are essentially going offshore, or some of the profits are? Well, it's necessary that some of those profits go offshore, but I don't see it necessarily as being a necessary evil. The reality is that uh, we have to think in terms of win-win partnerships, and foreigners aren't going to invest here unless there is a return for them. In the same way, we're not going to invest overseas ourselves as New Zealanders unless there's something in it for us. So the key thing is, uh, is everybody better off from the deal. It seems to me, just using Simlay as an example, and I'm just looking in here from the outside, Bright has not only provided capital, but it's provided you know, supply chain systems into the Chinese market. I note that Simlay are now starting to market their own infant formula 
in uh, Shanghai, labelled as being Canterbury Infant Formula. And this looks to me like the type of win-win situation that we should be looking for from foreign investment. In the last few days, Fonterra's released a revised version of its growth strategy, in which it outlines plans to grow dairy exports and increase product value by focusing more on emerging markets, such as China, Southeast Asia and Latin America, as well as the Middle East and Africa. My Farm Director Andrew Waters says there's no doubt the dairy industry has strong growth potential, but there are questions about how it will be funded. If we take the average farm and then multiply it up by the average asset value uh, from Dairy New Zealand figures, the industry is worth about $67 billion. The dairy industry is worth $67 billion. And that's supported, I think, by Reserve Bank figures of $27 billion of debt. And this is an environment where the world needs more milk. I think Fonterra have just come out with new figures talking about $160 billion litres increased production required by 2020. 25 billion litres of that needs to come from the international market. And for us to keep our place in the world as being a major exporter, we need to provide three, four, five billion of that ourselves. So to some extent, the industry, it's worth a lot of money, it's got a lot of debt, it needs to grow. So we have some choices about how we fund that growth. Do we fund it by retaining profits, i.e. farmers don't spend it? Do we fund it through... Uh, foreign investment, that's probably not that popular, or do we look for models where other New Zealand investors can put money into dairy and get the benefit of that growth, but also help construct a strong and viable industry for the, for the long term. Fonterra plans to introduce a new capital structure known as Trading Among Farmers, or TAF, later this year, once dairy industry legislation is amended to allow it. Currently, farmers are paid for the milk they produce based on how many cooperative shares they hold. They're required to match their shareholding with their milk production by owning one cooperative share for each kilogram of milk solids they produce each year and then buy or sell any difference with Fonterra at the start of each new season. The new scheme will allow farmers to trade those shares amongst themselves as well as place some of them with a shareholders fund. The fund would then issue units to outside investors, giving the public and institutions an investment linked to Fonterra's financial performance. But outside investors wouldn't own the shares, nor would they have voting rights. Farmers overwhelmingly voted in favour of the trading scheme three years ago, but since then they've become increasingly uneasy. Federated Farmers Dairy Chairman Willie Leffrink says some farmers fear they may lose 100% control of New Zealand's largest company to share market investors if, for some reason, the structure was changed to give investors voting rights. There's a group in New Zealand that has deep concerns about it. And, um, you know, they, they know, you know, talking to Fonterra and Fonterra is talking to them and, and, and they're voicing their concerns and, you know, that, that will play out in the next couple of months. Parties are reluctant to speak openly about their concerns, while last-minute discussions about the technical aspects of the scheme are being thrashed out. Speaking from a farm in Putararu, Fonterra's chairman Sir Henry van der Hayden insists the changing trends of farm ownership won't affect its cooperative structure now or in the future. When Fonterra got formed in 2001, there was something like um, 14,000 farms, and the majority of them are family farms, and today we've got 10, 10 and a half 
thousand um, farms are still the majority of them um, family farms. So, so there's a case in point. You know, less farms, but um, larger and larger. The, the evolving larger farms um, is not really changing the direction uh, of Fonterra. So, so we'll keep on playing to our strengths. You know, which is the co-op. Keep on driving um, the synergies. Uh, keep keep um, driving. You know what we do very very well. And even as farms grow larger and ownership diversifies, Sir Henry says he's confident dairy farming will be guided by its family roots. You might have a, um, a minority um, shareholding by someone that's not what I call a farming um, family, but generally it's still a farming family that's actually controlling the entity, um, controlling you know what's happening on farm. Um, um, so I, I still call them family farms that are getting larger and larger. But what you are seeing is some of the business disciplines, like um, what bankers are actually, you know, bringing bringing to that um, family business. You know, like budgets, reporting systems, good management, um, good governance over the top, um, training for staff, three-year business plans, five-year business plans, and those 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 sorts of things. But um, the direction is still, you know, larger family farms. A KPMG partner, Ian Proudfoot, says even though no specific ownership statistics are available, he feels most of New Zealand's farms are still under family ownership. But that might not be the case in 10 years. Our colleagues in Australia have just done some very interesting work around that in terms of looking at the ageing of farmers. And they're they're indicating that the average age of farmers um, in Australia now is about 56 and I would imagine it's probably the same in this country. And more interestingly, it's actually ageing at about 1.2 years a year. So that, that says some of the younger people are actually leaving the industry and we're getting an ever-grading concentration of older people in the industry. And that, that's the sort of issues that, to my mind, suggest that we, we are facing a real change in the sector in the next 10 years because at some point those people are going to reach the point where they can no longer work and they're going to have to look at how they exit their investments. So to me, one of the key things is the banks, the professional services organisations and probably the industry good organisations really need to come together and work with farmers to help them plan for that succession because otherwise the economy faces the risk of either a huge loss of value or a huge loss of control of one of our key productive assets. Back in Kiwatia, farmer Andrew Hogarth says he understands why there's such a strong appetite for investing in the high-growth dairy sector, especially after the collapse of finance companies. But as buyers get bigger, he's cautious the dairy industry's reputation doesn't become tarnished by unfavourable farming practices uncovered at corporate farms overseas. People view corporate, well, the word corporate's viewed as bad, whereas um, family farms sort of viewed in a good way. So there would be a, you know, market perception-wise, I think probably part of the selling point for New Zealand is perhaps the whole family farm sort of type um, scenario that, that probably can be a strong selling point for us. The industry is viewed in a better light if it's viewed as being family-owned farms. I think if we were viewed as a whole collection of corporates, there wouldn't be such a positive view on farming, and we certainly struggle with public image at the moment. Corporate farmers doubt consumers in foreign markets care about who owns the farms that produces their dairy products, so long as they're sourced from clean green New Zealand. And while that enviable reputation remains, demand for New Zealand's liquid gold is expected to continue to grow. 
And so too is the appetite for investment in the dairy sector. I'm Naomi Mitchell, and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to contact us, you can send us an email to insight at radioNZ.co.nz or tweet us at rnz underscore insight. That programme was written and presented by me, Naomi Mitchell, was produced by Philippa Tolley, and technical production was by Mark Chesterman.